size of a shoebox, not too worried about clean rooms. You just launch it up there. It has a shorter service life, but at sort of under 2000 bucks a kilo to replace it, you know, five-year service lifetime, launch some more, off we go. And so all of the old impediments about working from space, it's difficult, it's expensive, you've got to get it right first time, you can't repair them. We've kind of entered this new area with reusable rocketry and this stuff starts to look really quite cheap. So all of a sudden, it's time to take it seriously. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by AP Nick discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Jeff Houston from AP Nick Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I discussed low Earth orbit or LEO satellite constellations again, but this time with a focus on the effects on end-to-end performance in TCP. TCP congestion control algorithms have mostly focused on fair share models, using loss as a strong signal to bandwidth. The problem is that they don't cope well with the variability of digital satellite communications and the effect this has on delay and loss. BBR has a much more aggressive link bandwidth estimation model. It can push harder towards the maximum available speed, but it's less able to share a link with other TCPs. So the impact of increasing use of BBR, which is being driven by some applications, set against other TCP choices, which may be using Quick, for example, is having an impact in how people perceive the use of these new LEO-based systems. Jeff, welcome back. Hi, George. Good to be back. What have you got for us this time? Well, I've been doing some work on Starlink. Mm. This these low Earth orbiting satellites and this sort of new internet in the sky. And it's actually really fascinating. And I don't know why, but as you sort of delve into this stuff, you find this wonderful mix of physics and technology. And it's really very, very interesting. And I'd like to kind of talk about this. And, and ultimately, what it kind of gets to, I hope, is to look at the issues around how do you design protocols to make use of these kinds of services? Because what we're finding is that this stuff in the sky reacts differently to the stuff on the ground. So we probably should go back and cover some basic first principles to make sure that we understand what's going on here. Classic satellite that we all know and love were geosynchronous orbit, high orbit, devices that had a very high delay component, but it was kind of a constant delay because they orbit above where you are in a fixed pattern. It's a predictable behavior. Will you go back to Arthur C. Clarke, who in in somewhere, sometime, and I think it was in the 40s or maybe the 50s, had made the prediction, in fact, it made the observation really, that if you got the satellite high enough, and 36,000 kilometers is a pretty good height, the period of rotation around the Earth was exactly one day. So this thing didn't move in the sky, it just hung there at a known spot. 
So you have a known spot and a known place to point your antenna, but you incur the consequence of the distance. 36,000 kilometres away. Now, when Arthur Clarke's thought about this, it was a bit of a pipe dream, right? But all of a sudden, we did rocketry, we did the moonshots, we did all this kind of stuff. And it became pretty obvious pretty soon after rocketry came through in the 60s that you could put satellites up at these geostationary orbits and aim fixed dishes on the Earth at them, and it worked. And this was the revolution in international telephony. We used it for phones, we used it for television, we used it for all kinds of services. It was expensive, but it was certainly a lot cheaper and easier in some ways than dragging undersea cables and all that that entailed. Well, the capital investment is at fixed points both on the ground and getting a launch achieved, and it has the behaviour that it's a completely consistent behaviour. Okay, allowing for some loss under varying conditions. It is essentially a constant delay communication with known behaviours. Now, there is a problem. Space might be infinite, but the amount of space in that geostationary orbit around the Earth is actually quite limited. Because if you put the two satellites close enough together, and you beam a signal from the Earth, you'll confuse each other. Which satellite are you talking to? Which satellite am I receiving signals from? And all that kind of stuff. So we actually separate those satellites in the geostationary orbit two degrees apart from each other. Two degrees of angular separation yes. viewed from the ground. The Earth, viewed from the centre of the Earth, actually. There are 180 slots, not thousands. And a lot of countries said, well, that space up there, I may not own it, but it's mine. And so there was a bit of a a land rush on grabbing geostationary slots. And of course, the international folk, uh, the UN really, Inmarsat, et cetera, and Intelsat had a few slots for themselves and pretty quickly it was full. So we were using it for television, we were using it for voice, and we started to try and use it a bit for data. The beauty of the system was When you're that far away from the Earth, you see a lot of the Earth all at once. So one investment in launch and one object persisting in a fixed point for aiming an antenna, many, many places can point an antenna at it. As Viasat proved, you only need three of them to do global coverage. Only three. Because each satellite covers a hemisphere, and if you get a bit of overlap, then three is perfect. Intelsat had one station, one set of satellites over the middle of the Atlantic, another set over the middle of the Pacific, and another set over the middle of the Indian, global coverage. So in some ways, it kind of worked. However, for data, and indeed for voice, it wasn't that good. A long gap, it takes a lot of time to send a signal that far and back again. And in round trip times, a round trip is there and back again, the minimum time was 680 milliseconds, two-thirds of a second. And he said, I go, that's not that bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that, around, I remember those days. That was actually extremely difficult. Around the world on fibre is, is at best, you know, worst about 200 milliseconds, so three times faster. So this was slow. And the other problem is it doesn't have an awful lot of bandwidth. About the biggest circuit you can get from these folk was 45 megabits per second. It wasn't a huge amount of bandwidth. So we started dreaming as we got better at rocketry, we started dreaming about a different kind of system. And the folk who started the dream were actually in Motorola. 
And we're talking late 80s, 87, 89. And they had this dream of, instead of having a big fixed earth station bolted to the ground and, you know, lots of infrastructure and not much capacity, why don't we launch a whole bunch of these things, but don't launch them very high? Put them into a different kind of orbit, a low earth orbit, the same kind of orbit as the space station. So you're down low. You're not rotating around the Earth once per day. You're not hanging in the sky. You're zooming over the sky. These things will take about 15 minutes or so to pass from horizon to horizon as they zoom across. I've seen the space station passing overhead and it's quite fun to watch that thing move and realise it's moving really remarkably fast, even if it feels a little bit like it's crawling, it's really not. But it feels a little like we proved this could work, but there's another but coming here, Jeff. Well, yes, it's going 27,000 kilometres an hour. But to get coverage, as one disappears over the horizon, another one has to be visible and coming up on the other side. You need to launch a bunch of them, a constellation. And so Motorola actually went through the effort and they launched a constellation of these satellites in the 1990s. They launched 95 of them. And I'm not sure what the altitude was. I seem to recall it was up around 2,000 kilometres high, maybe a bit higher. So the delay component of that height compared to geosynchronous would That's have pretty been... quick. It's, it's sort of 10 milliseconds. Oh, just gee, I've there. had land services to an exchange that were slower than that. So that's really a quite respectable delay. I could live with that if they can offer me high-speed right, service. We're talking 1990s. Yeah. We're talking phone, not data. Right. And we're also talking where the telephone companies saw something up above as a threat, not a friendly addition to the service. And so all the phone companies in the world refused to give them permission to actually provide a service in their country. And Motorola might have spent $30 billion trying to launch the damn stuff, because launch is expensive, but they probably spent, at least in terms of man hours, in terms of time, an equal amount of time, trying to get permission to have a service in various countries. Hmm. And they failed. And not long after it was actually turned on, Motorola were willing to go bankrupt, out of here, Iridium's dead. We're going to burn them up and send them to their fiery hell because we're not gonna run this anymore. It just isn't worth it. If I remember this right, although launching a satellite is very expensive and people might like to believe keeping it up there is essentially free until it runs out of fuel, you do actually have to maintain digital comms to these beasts and that costs money. You have to have equipment in ground stations and staff and radio links and investment. It's not free to keep a service like this You've running. You've got to keep the lights on. Now, it wasn't a lot, but Motorola weren't there. They're you not know, a charity. They're not a charity. And so the answer was no. And at that point, there was a little bit of, oh, my God, we're using this, says a small number of folk, including the US military. Not so small. Handheld mobile phones with global coverage were kind of pretty cool. That's really quite useful. And so the US with the FCC, an officer in the FCC, Kathy Brown, who later became head of ISOC, certainly engineered a, a salvation. And, and someone picked up 
the ghosts of Iridium for a mere $30 million. And Iridium's still running today, but it's actually in terms of what it's capable of in data, it was pretty lousy. A few kilobits per second, wasn't much. So we had geosynchronous orbit, long delay component, somewhat bandwidth constrained, but three satellites is enough to give yeah. you global coverage, but you have a limit on the number of slots available around the world. We then have Motorola trying low Earth orbit, somewhere around 100 satellites, proving the concept, but the market conditions But a different model. Good. Because they were retail, not wholesale. They weren't selling circuitry. They were trying to sell to you and me. Here's a handset, take it anywhere you like, have fun, it just works. Yeah. And, and it was kind of that shift from, well, this stuff is all very expensive infrastructure and it costs a lot of money and only big companies and governments use it to, here's a handset, knock yourself out. But still quite an expensive launch cost. And it did put people off. And the fate of Iridium certainly was a salutary lesson to the rocket people. And things kind of went into abeyance. The US program with its space shuttles and everything else kind of fell into a bit of a problem with some disasters going on. The whole system, which was initially with strong governmental involvement, kind of folded and space became a little bit more of experimentation and probes to Venus and, and probes to Neptune yeah. and so on. The idea of converting this into a repeatable experience that's declining in price and people are actually innovating technology in space kind of faded into the background it, it a bit. kind of faded. And then there was this kind of second wave of the internet. And... The expanding internet kind of caused us to rethink infrastructure. And we're starting to put a whole bunch of fiber optic cable under the sea, but oddly enough, that only connects two points. Now, you don't need to interconnect all the seafloor. No one's crazy as that. But think about the land mass, because we only live in a small amount of land, and the rest of the land, there's often nothing. Now, I live in Australia, and I can assure you, 98% of the land is nothing. There's no mobile phone towers, there's no service. It's completely uneconomic. So we're getting to a position where, for a highly urbanised economy, particularly that's close to the sea, it's possible to get reasonably fast data service to a large number of people a long way down the international fibre. But if you are trying to provide something that we used to call the universal service obligation for someone that's in a rural and remote location, the infrastructure cost to deliver them high-speed service is very expensive. Right, and, and what we used to do was set up an earth station, aim a big fixed dish at an Intelsat spacecraft and pull down circuitry that way. It was slow, cost a lot of money, it worked for governments, it worked for large communities, it didn't work for people like you and me. I've known people who live behind that class of satellite service yes. and there were very definitely restrictions on what they could do. They were given fairly explicit limits. You are not downloading content constantly. They were told it's at your risk if you try to do video conferencing over this. We won't guarantee quality of service. They felt second-class citizens. Right. So along comes SpaceX. Now, this is kind of the new wave in the American view of space. In 1962, I think, 
when this was first unfolding, President Kennedy declared that space would be a humanitarian asset. It would not be privatised. Governments would do this, not private entrepreneurs. That was 1962. That's long since gone past. Governments now, there are so many calls on the public purse, schools, hospitals, education, you know, you name it. We're not going to pop money into space. We're happy for the new class of billionaire entrepreneur to go and do this instead. We might even buy service from them. We might even. Along came SpaceX and Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and his ones. It's a new wave. And SpaceX was certainly one of the first to come back to this but they're not the only ones. There was another project, O3B, for the other three billion, which is a little bit optimistic, but launching satellites to actually serve as data, not voice, and launching constellations so you can get it down low enough that handhelds, a retail model, actually looks viable. So this is taking the idea that Motorola proved in concept, if not as a viable business because of the conditions, re-examining the cost of launch, re-examining the kind of technology you need up in space and thinking, can we make this work? Yes, and and we're not competing on voice, even though it doesn't matter anymore because voice is worthless, but can we fill in the gaps in data? So now let's just sort of pause for a second and look a little bit about physics and, and sort of where we are. Why this fascination with low Earth orbit? Because of the Van Allen belt that's around the Earth. So the Van Allen belt is what exactly? There is a spinning iron molten core at the middle of the Earth, which both of us feel very grateful exists and keeps on spinning. Because a spinning conductor generates an electromagnetic field, the Earth is one massive dipole, and that creates a magnetic field around the Earth that deflects solar radiation. So it's kind of like a security blanket that's it's keeping kind of, us kind alive. kind of like an umbrella. Yeah, it keeps life on Earth, on Earth and keeps the atmosphere here as well to a certain extent. So it's a good thing. But it comes in a number of belts. And the low Van Allen belt, the inner one, starts at around 2,000 kilometres above the surface of the Earth. So that if you launch a spacecraft under it, You don't need to give it lead lining. You don't need to shield it from solar radiation to the same extent that if you're up at 36,000 kilometres out in the geostationary, because a lot of the radiation has been deflected by the Van Allen belt. So that sets an upper limit on where you could launch into and get some protection from the Van Allen belts as a geophysical system around the Earth. Hubble. 595 kilometres up, the Hubble Space Telegraph. All those space stations are somewhere between 300 and 400 kilometres. How low can you go? Well, if you go faster, you can go lower. But there are a couple of things that stop you. The absolute kind of level of atmosphere, the top of the stratosphere, is about 160-odd kilometres out there. When you get a lot of solar radiation, some of it leaks through and the Earth's atmosphere actually expands a bit. So 160 is kind of the upper, sometimes it's lower than that. So this is essentially about drag. It's the cost of bumping into atoms at the edge of the atmosphere. They heat you up and they slow you down. (laughs) And that's bad because if you get slowed down, you'll plummet back to Earth. There's another problem too, actually, it's actually illegal. You see, (laughs) (laughs) seriously? (laughs) 
No one, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, my lawyer is 200 k's away. How can they possibly be a problem? Each country owns a bit of surface geography. Right. A, a territory, a space on the surface of the earth. Each country actually claims an economic exclusive economic zone around in, in the sea. Right. But interestingly, they also claim down below them, I don't know what depth, I've never researched how far each country goes down. Well, it can't go past the midpoint because the they'd, be, they'd be touching someone else's. All the way down to the But core. you're going to say it goes up It too. goes up. Right. And it goes up to at least 100 kilometres. And all the countries in the world have agreed that above that kind of area is outer space and no one owns it. But what they couldn't agree is what that is. So some countries claim exclusive economic interest, national territorial interest, to 100 kilometres. Right. Some go 120, 140, 160 kilometres. If you're above 160, you are truly not owned. You're not travelling through anyone's territory. So you're not having to seek permission to emit I, radio I, signals or I'd receive like to, radio, like, radio like signals. I'd across you for the next 15 seconds, you know, that kind of thing. No permission needed. You, so there's a lower bound, it's essentially layer nine politics and policy, law, yeah. and there's an upper bound, 2000, it's physics. a Van Allen belt. And that's, that's a sweet spot. The laws of physics and the laws of humans on earth, and that's the sweet spot that Leo's exist in. So let's then go a little bit further into the physics of this. So this thing is around 500 kilometres up there, right? Safely in the legal zone, well under the Van Allen belt. Safely in the legal zone. Now, if it looks down at the Earth, what does it see? How much of the Earth does it see? Interesting question. <sighs> you don't see half of the Earth. You're too low. You know, you're right close to it. So what you actually see is a circle with a radius of around 900 kilometres max. So if you go down from the satellite, you can sort of draw a big circle of 900 kilometres radius and go, you can see me right at the edge. I'm just on the horizon, but you can see me. So that's 2 million square kilometres. But unlike geosynchronous orbit, that 900 kilometre radius circle is moving across yes, we'll, we'll get the to surface of the Earth. But let's assume for a second, we just take a snapshot. How many satellites is required, each of which has a two million square kilometer area of the Earth's surface, how many do you need to cover the entire Earth? And the answer is about 500. That's actually not that big a number, Jeff. That's a surprisingly low number. Motorola were doing coverage at a lower data rate, at a higher well, orbit, up higher, so with about less. 100. Yes, right. And you're saying this particular orbit, it's around 500. To, if you're able to distribute them uniformly, keep them well separated and have no intersection. Now, in actual fact, you want a bit of overlap, you want a bit more coverage. They are moving pretty quick. So a good number would probably be six to 10 to 20 times that. So you're looking at somewhere between 3,000 and 20,000 spacecraft, and you'll get some pretty decent service all the time, everywhere on the Earth. So old school brain, grew up in the 60s. It's very expensive to go into space. You can count the number of satellites probably on the fingers of a few kids' hands because 
they stay up there a long time and they cost millions and millions of dollars. And you're now saying that if you could make it possible to get 10,000 of them up there, you could do something really cool. But that's a lot of money, Jeff. Well, the space shuttle, when it was at work in the early 1980s, it costs around $60,000 to put a kilo of material into orbit. And a satellite's about the size of a small car. So that's a lot of... That's a lot of kilos. Right. And I must admit, the space shuttle was expensive. The Delta rocket, yeah, about $20,000, $30,000 a kilo. And over the next year, in the 1990s, it came down between sort of fifteen and 20000 It never really got cheap because you're consuming a lot of fuel, a lot of, you know, Getting something up is difficult. Well, it's also risky. I mean, you probably can't get insurance to cover this and have to self-insure the cost of it not working. Right, and rockets are single-use. Whoosh, gone. Whoosh, gone. The space shuttle was expensive because they spent a lot of time and effort trying to reuse it, but it took six months to organise a new launch, you know. So launch costs for a long time were a minimum of around 8,000 bucks a kilo into orbit, into low Earth orbit. Right, which is not going to work for the kind of thing that's wanting to get 10,000 objects put up there and maintained. Along comes Elon, and the rocketry is kind of the rocketry. The Falcon 1, 12,000 bucks a kilo into orbit. Hmm. The Falcon 9, however, as you saw in these really cute videos, comes back down to Earth. And he can use it again. He's apparently been using this 19 times on one of his rockets. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad he's not taking human payloads yet, but, you know, yes. So what has he effectively got the kilo cost to orbit? 2,500 a kilo, and that's on the Falcon 9. The heavy is below 2,000 a kilo. This is unprecedented because all of a sudden it's dirt cheap to put stuff into a low-Earth orbit. And that's revolutionised this entire view of the low Earth orbit area. So satellites previously would be radiation-hardened, special purpose, older generation, big VLSI, all of this stuff. Lots of money. Under the Van Allen belt, you could maybe be a little more commodity about things. Size of a shoebox, not too worried about clean rooms, you just launch it up there. It has a shorter service life, but at sort of under 2,000 bucks a kilo to replace it, five-year service lifetime, launch some more, off we go. And so all of the old impediments about working from space, it's difficult, it's expensive, you've got to get it right first time, you can't repair them. We've kind of entered this new area with reusable rocketry and this stuff starts to look really quite cheap. So all of a sudden, it's time to take it seriously. And... That's kind of what's changed in this picture because we're now seeing some really interesting announcements. For example, Australia, big country, always had trouble trying to get high-speed bandwidth into the outer levels of nowhere. Well, it's a significantly higher cost per unit of consumer than it is to provide high-speed services to the city. I mean, it's a big impost. It's a big impost. But now you pay Starlink under $1,000 for Dishy and 100 bucks a month, and you've got hundreds of megs of capacity to you and um, you. 
anywhere on the Australian continent. And the delay is comparable to an inner city oh, delay it's service. probably faster. Don't forget, the speed of light through a vacuum is 50% faster than the speed of light through fibre. So it can actually be faster than fibre. Well, <laughs> through space, it is faster. So yes, this is quick. This is amazing. And this is why, and now you're getting the telcos who previously saw Iridium as an existential threat. Oh my God, they're going to do this stuff from space. They're going to cut us out of the mobile market. We're all going to die. They're now looking at this going, you know, we're pretty comfortable in the areas we serve by fiber. We're happy with that. Yeah. But there are some areas which it is so difficult to service. They're not profitable for us to do No matter how much we it. charge them, we'll never make money. And along comes Starlink going, we can do this because yeah. this satellite, this constellation of 4,000 satellites, soon to be 12,000, services all the world at the same price. I think we've also arrived to a point where telcos that used to be national monopolies that owned infrastructure have actually changed to being billing engines that are happy to be virtual enterprises on top of someone else's equipment. Right. So the idea of, well, I'm leasing this infrastructure to do mobile is not really that different to, well, I'm leasing this infrastructure from satellites in low Earth orbit. You know, I'm I'm actually kind of sold on the idea. It's low bandwidth, it's low capital cost, it has a huge footprint. If you can get about 10,000 of them up there, it sounds like so a good idea. this is the land rush of the 21st century. So currently, SpaceX has filed with the FCC plans to launch 35,000 individual satellites in low Earth orbit. Oh my God. OneWeb, oh, that's a mere 7,000 more. Amazon, Project Kuiper, seven and a half thousand. <laughs> China, Guowei, oh, they're not filing with the FCC at this point, but you know, they're, well, currently they're not really <laughs> under any obligation. If you want to ground your signal, ah, right? If the market is the American market. Right. Don't forget, Countries still own below 160 kilometres. Yeah. You, you want so them to receive your You signal. might not expect them to regulate you in every sense, but you need them to know you're in business. So, I would imagine there's a European equivalent yes, as well. Yes, there's Astra, Global Star, Boeing, Telesat, Lightspeed. Is there actually room up there for this many people to occupy space between about 100 and 2,000? The multiple orbit thing is not going to be a problem? Well... <laughs> We have this problem, it's a bit like nuclear fission. That once you start a fragment of neutrons bombarding uranium atoms to release more neutrons, you get an uncontrolled reaction and things go bang pretty quickly. If you get a crowded space in that LEO area and one or two things hit each other at high speed, because they are moving, 27,000 miles or kilometres per hour. And relative to each other, then, if their orbits are different but in these, the same height. These fragments are high-velocity bullets, and if they hit other satellites, you create more fragments, which create more fragments. And yes, there is a runaway potential. And up there, there's no vacuum cleaner, and you're high enough up that they won't fall back to Earth. Hmm. These, That's not sounding good. So there are risks in this, but you know, I'm kind of more interested in the analytical questions around how this behaves because IP protocol, the way I use okay, it, so it, it kind of, this is an interesting thing. You've sold me that it works and you've sold me that it's low latency and you've sold me that it's cheap, cheaper. I'm a believer, but how does it behave? Okay, so we've now got a constellation of satellites. 
And we'll, we'll settle on Starlink. And as I said, there are lots more coming. This is the new ground rush. Everyone's yep. launching. You don't need permissions. It's outer space. No one owns it. Off we go. So I've got around 5,000 of these up in the sky. And at any point in any part of the surface of the Earth, if you look up, you will see within range between 30 and 50 Starlink satellites at any point in time. They're all moving, but you can see all of them. You can see 30 to 50 of them, of those 4,000 that are above you within reach. And they all have highly predictable orbits. And although it might sound like, my God, it's 10,000 things, this would be easy to solve this a computer. Well, not, not, Knowing where to look not is quite. not hard. Not quite. It is actually a challenge. And there's one other piece of the technical puzzle that I think has been brilliant for this kind of work. We are so used to the satellite dish farm, these pictures of these large areas with these big parabolic dishes looking upwards to the sky. And you think, oh my God, if I've got to track a satellite that is moving across in a few minutes. I'm from swinging one, a giant machine. You're swinging a giant amount of metal from one, one area to the other, and it's just going to fall off its hinges. The motor's going to right. burn out. This is bad. Now, because it's so low, you don't need much power you need very little power. So it's not a big dish. It's not as small as your laptop normally, although it could be. It's about four times that size. It's about one meter by half a meter, and it's a flat dish. It's not parabolic. Why? Because they're using something that I think is incredibly, incredibly inventive, and it's quite an old invention. It's called a phased array antenna. So it's not one antenna. It's actually a few hundred in a matrix. So it's actually a little grid of smaller antennas. I yeah. think I know where this is going. I remember a high school experiment to make you experience standing waves in audio where they set up two speakers and they make the class walk in front of them and you walk through loud, soft, loud, soft, loud, soft patterns because of the interference fringes. So this is going to be a story about interference fringes and phase, isn't it? Right. So if you change the phase, if you send out the same signal to these two speakers, but you subtly change the phase between them, there's only one spot in front of those two speakers where you sound coherent. Oh, I never sound coherent, <laughs> Jeff. But putting that but to one side. You see what I'm side. saying? Yeah. The, the two sound waves will sound precisely the same at just that one spot because when you sound close to one speaker, the other one's out of phase. Yeah. And so you can use that same property in these electrical waves. By selecting which pattern so, of these mini antennas, you create a point that can kind of virtually move around. Correct. No physical movement. So the dish is kind of not moving. But the electronics is able to focus the dish using phase focusing very quickly and track things. Because you simply change the relative phasings of this array and you track where the signal's coming from and equally you can track where you're focusing, where you're sending. Clever. So clever that Starlink, if you buy one, will deliver you a flat panel, a stand, and say, go out into the open, have a good view of the sky. Yeah. Plug it in. We'll it take works. care of the it, rest. It just works. Self-install. 
Who would have thought? No engineers, no nothing. Self-installed space networking. I remember an older technology, DirectX, actually had to go through quite a heavy-handed ritual of move it this way, move well, it that way. Well, you're aiming at a Look at a signal meter on your screen. Yeah, you're when right. I tell you it's correct, leave it alone. It's like the old VSAT. You're physically trying to maneuver this. But these things are low enough, and there's enough power around, and they're tracking. So you just got to sort of put it out in the open. It will do a little bit of physical movement to get the dish vaguely oriented. Yeah. But after that, everything else tracks electronically. Now... Again, I'm probably leaping ahead a little bit here, but my understanding is there's not an awful lot of internet happening up there. That's not where the smart things are happening. Mostly, it's happening somewhere else. This is a signal going up to a satellite that has been kept pretty simple, and it's being sent back down again. Well, you're leaping ahead here, so let's just sort of stop for a second and... Think about what we're constructing on the Earth and up in the sky. On the Earth, I've got this phased array antenna that can electronically yep. steer. Up there, I've got a constellation of satellites whizzing across the sky. Moving through. Moving through. And they move from horizon to horizon in about three minutes, so they're pretty quick. And so what I've got to do is lock into one and then lock into another, and lock it. As they move across my visible horizon, I've got to constantly track them from the Earth and receive signals from them and send signals to them. But for that three-minute slice, give or take some minutes... Well, it's actually a lot shorter than that, but, you know, yes, for that, that slice of time... I'm talking to one thing. You're talking to one thing, yes-ish. Ish. But In actual fact, it's a I phase, have to switch and it's, talk it's, it's to a phased another array. Thing. So not all of your array is talking to the one thing. A part of the array is getting ready for the next thing. So that the switch is actually instantaneous because you just switch which elements of the phased array are tracking which spacecraft. So you can sort of pre-tune and then leap over to the other part of the array. Pre-tune and leap again. Now, if I were just talking to random things moving overhead, it would be hard to believe I'm maintaining a coherent conversation. But given the base station is owned by SpaceX and the satellite array is owned by SpaceX, the fact that I was talking to box 41 and now I'm talking to box 29 doesn't actually have to be a problem. There's a, there's a big controller deep inside SpaceX. Somewhere in the that, system, that, it coherently works out that, that conversations tells, with me. Satellite number 23 to focus on dish number 5082 for the next 15 seconds. 15 seconds? That's all. Now, that's 11 degrees of orbit. 15, 15 seconds. 15 seconds, usually. You said <laughs> that it was sky to sky three minutes, and you cut this down to 15 seconds talking yes. to one thing. A large amount of the sky isn't usable. The bits that are very low, you don't want to go to. Too much horizon, it's too far away, there are trees, there's all kinds of stuff. You can't look straight up because you don't want to interfere with geostationaries and the sun. So you've kind of got this... Either in the northern hemisphere, you look in the northern half of the sky. In the southern hemisphere, oddly enough, you look in the southern half of the sky. And you're kind of looking at around 45, 50, 60 degrees around that area as the satellites whiz past you. And that's your optimal point. But I've got 40 things moving through it. So actually, at any given point... There's a rich choice. There's a, there's a number I can work there's with. There's a rich choice. So let's have a look now at what's in the spacecraft. So in the first case, in the first case, these spacecraft 
actually have, oh God, 48 transponders is a lot. They have an enormous amount of bandwidth and they have an enormous number of spot beams. And those spot beams are focusable because it's phased array at the spacecraft as well. So what actually goes on is this controller not only assigns a spacecraft to a beam, you know, to an Earth station for 15 seconds, but it actually assigns a beam. This part of the beam is this set of dishes, not just one, but a set, for this 15 second period, right? But you can spread them out. So you can actually have a number of people using this facility or a number of these facilities talking to one person. You can do either. You can do an awful lot of mucking around, and they do. You've got a lot of flexibility to play with this, yes. So how well does this work? The promo says, and they're not really wrong, that this thing is around 200 megabits per second. And that's the capacity of one spot beam. Now, oddly enough, if your adjacent neighbors don't exist, <laughs> Well, I'm on a farm and I don't talk to him. We're on a very small island in the middle of the ocean. I didn't tell him SpaceX was available, so he doesn't have a subscription. On this spacecraft where you've got multiple spot beams, they might actually beam multiple points at you. And so it's quite possible to get up to 800 megabits per second with three or four beams being aimed at you at the same time. But equally, you could be slightly denser and you might be competing with your neighbour. So there's kind of a flaw level. You might be competing with thousands of neighbours. You're sharing. But we're all used to this anyway. I mean, on mobile internet, my phone is rated as up to 400 megabits, but the up to's are fairly important. Right, so we're all aware with mobile phones on a good day when you know, you're in the middle of a field and you're the only person using the base station, wow. But you're in an arena with I'm actually 100,000 of your closest I'm mates I'm amazed watching. that they can make it work in a football <laughs> arena. But the bottom line is they can. And I would sense that SpaceX has got some level of density of customer that it can make well, work. Well, oddly enough, you find in many countries, and Australia is no exception, if you're out in the country, it costs a lot less to buy a dishy than if you're in the city. So they're using pricing they're using as a controlling function. discrimination amongst other reasons to, to try and sort of push use into less dense areas where it works better and where there is a real need versus, you know, in the cities, you might as well just use fibre or anything else, right? So low Earth orbit, three to five milliseconds of physical delay because of height. Yes. 48 spot beams up there that can be per tuned spacecraft around per spacecraft. 5,000 spacecraft. 15 seconds of binding to one of them, and then I've got to go to the next and, one. Uh, well, let's just complete There's this. a let, lot of, there's a lot going on the story. Here. These things were just floating mirrors. So you needed to have an Earth station within, well, 1,800 kilometres close to you. In fact, inside the radial Inside distance. the radius, because the signal goes up and it has to go straight back down again. Yeah. Oh, not anymore. They have lasers, inter-spacecraft lasers. So now I can go up and over and down. So all of Australia is now reachable by Starlink, but there aren't Earth stations dotted across the country. So when this first 
launched, I do remember that there was a map that was a coverage map that didn't entirely make didn't sense entirely to me. Cover because everything. if the satellites are orbiting everywhere, why wasn't it everywhere? And the answer is it was the base station. It's where the base station But were. now that they can do a transit in the sky, all they have a, a sudden, lot more freedom. All of a sudden, they're giving service to Mongolia, but they're actually bringing the signal back to Earth in Japan. So there's no requirement of necessity to site base stations in an economy? Well, no, not anymore. What with this, there's an extraordinary amount of flexibility. So this is kind of what we've got to play with. This is the service. So the service is a small self-installed dishy. Yeah. Runs at about 200 megabits per second, in theory. Yeah. Almost anywhere on the globe is feasible. Yeah. Whether country that geography has signed a deal with Starlink or not is probably the biggest impediment. And of course, if you're in a crowded city, it's probably not worth doing it. You need to be somewhere that's sort of less dense than that in order to make this a good option. It can be on a ship. Don't forget, even a moving car is slow to a satellite at 27,000 kilometres an hour. It can be on the roof of your car. It can be anywhere. Mobility is easy. So in my domestic environment in a city where I've taken a contract on fibre, I actually generally achieve the throughput that I'm offered as a service. So I have bought 50, 20, 50 megabit down, 20 up. And the evidence is quite strong that that's an achievable rate. The question that would be out there is, can they deliver the 200 megabits that they promise? So can I deliver it? Not only to the fixed point, but to the car, to the aeroplane, to the ship. How good is this service? And this is when you start to talk about digital protocols, TCP in particular. What are the characteristics of Starlink and how do you engineer the protocol to match it? Because this is not like a piece of fibre. It's not a steady 200 megabit per, 200, you know, bit per second carrier circuit. And it's not a constant latency. Well, we should probably go a little sideways and talk about how TCP tries to understand the environment it's working in. Because the other network technologies we've been talking about, DSL, fibre, cable, to most people actually is a remarkably constant thing. We engineered the first sort of networks for the human voice. And what we said was all the work is going to happen in the network. And we're going to actually make the network sustain a continuous analogue signal of a fixed capacity. When we digitised it, we actually found that that fixed capacity, depending on which way you digitised it, was somewhere between 56,000 and 64,000 bits per second. And if we did that, we could give a tolerable quality of audio. We give a very good quality of audio. It was really sustainable and it scaled and it worked. So circuitry ran at a fixed speed and a fixed delay. And that way humans could converse across that network without anything special. Well, I don't handle delay well. I remember the old satellite telephone and it was a royal pain. So when we introduced packet-based networking, we threw that out. We kept the characteristics of a fixed circuit, but instead of subdividing it into tiny voice-sized sub-circuits, 64 kilobits, we said to the packet computers, You could have this entire circuit for the duration of a packet and then some other packet. You guys are just going to have to work out sharing on your own. And so what we did was we said, we're going to make packet-based systems work across fixed bounds circuits. 
Yeah. So you set up a circuit that, you know, let's say it's an old 10 megabit per second Ethernet, 100 megabits, a gigabit per second, but the carrier frequency is kind of constant. Yeah. And the delay is kind of constant, and the protocol is feeling itself through. It doesn't have a magic switch to be told, I've been plugged into 100 megabits. It doesn't. It has to find out for itself where the limit is. The computers that you and I use use a TCP protocol, and, and what it does is it's got a sense how fast it can go. It's like you're in a car on a road, yeah. And you're trying to sense how fast can I go before I crash. <laughs> and literally, that's exactly what happens. Just pushes until it loses packets. And it's okay to lose packets. Unlike cars where it's not okay to crash, it's actually quite okay to lose packets. So you simply have to resend the thing you lost. You resend the thing you lost. But you also get a piece of information, well, you, that rate of you, sending. You, you remember what you sent until you get it acknowledged. So you can yeah. afford to lose packets and you just resend them. But you, you can push your sending rate up until you get a problem. Now, because the carriage rate is constant, when I get a problem and I back off a bit, I've got a feeling of what that ceiling is. Because yeah. the ceiling's always this constant height, yeah. this constant sort of threshold. So we could argue a bit about how quickly you try to find it. And we can argue a bit about how quickly you go away when you hit it and then how quickly you come right. back again. There are different ways but, of doing but, it. But the, con- the thing I'm getting from you is it's heading to something it kind of knows is a constant it limit It knows out it's there. a constant and it's kind of probing into that constant. But it doesn't know what the value is. But the more it probes into it, the more it can lock in and go, that's as fast as I can go. If I go any faster, I'm just going to lose packets. Well, if we flip back to a... Starlink story. Hang on a second. I've got a couple more here before I get into the Starlink story. Because you're not the only car on the road. And when there are two packets or two streams trying to share, it'd be good if you kind of shared at 50-50. Yeah, that would be ideal. And, And so these flow control protocols, TCP, are actually designed to be friendly to each other. So not only are they working against what they think is a fixed upper bound, But if they're finding other protocols are also trying to work to that, they try and equilibriate their demands. So it's like mixing two streams of water. If you keep the pressure in both streams the same, they will end up basically occupying half of the pipe each. Yeah. When one tries to push a bit harder, the other one has to resist that to make sure that they stay at equilibrium pressure. TCP behaves much the same way. It is friendly to other TCPs. Now, the way that works is that the feedback loops that govern its speed work at the same order of time. So as long as these flows have approximately the same end-to-end delay... If they have the same delay and the same model of how to back off the deal... They will react in ways that keep them locked against each other and equally share this available resource. If one of them shuts down, the others will fill in the gap equitably. So I've got this model that assumes the circuit's kind of constant in diameter, in capacity. Yeah. And secondly, losses are caused because I push too hard. They're congestion losses. It's not random. Losses are because the packet's full, the pipe's full, and I've got a problem. And the third characteristic is the delay is pretty constant. It's not random. One packet takes a second, the next packet takes 20 seconds, the next packet takes a millisecond. That doesn't work. TCP collapses. 
So now let's go back to Starlink and think about what's going on here. Well, I would have thought first principles, they're all at pretty much the same height. They're all moving at pretty much the same speed. You'd like to believe the fundamentals of no, the no, physics no, no, are, no. it's the same. No, 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 no. Think of a spot beam, a large sort of circular beam, as it travels across the Earth's surface. Just one beam, one spot. What you'll see is, the beam gets stronger and stronger and stronger as the satellite gets towards overhead. When it's directly overhead pointing at you, it'll be really strong. And then as it moves away and sets in the other horizon, the beam gets weaker. And so the signal to noise, it's constantly varying because this beam is not beaming at you, it's beaming at the earth as it moves across. It's like a spot beam moving across a crowd. So what you actually find is the quality of the signal goes weak to strong to weak, and it's moving quickly. Now, the quality of the signal determines the available capacity because the signal-to-noise ratio is basically how you manage to do encoding to get capacity out. And because the intensity of the beam changes as this spot moves overhead, you've got this constantly moving signal-to-noise ratio. Right, and the amount of work that you have to do to reconstruct the well, valid the signal of, in The amount coding. of carriage capacity you get changes really quickly. What, does it change once a second? No. Does it change every tenth of a second? No, probably every hundredth or even more. And I'm using one satellite for 15 seconds. So I'm locked onto a machine that I'm going to talk to, but for the 15 second interval, my conditions I have to talk through. Might vary a lot. So instead of having a constant upper threshold, I've now got something that's slushy, highly variable. And it might be 200 megabits for a fraction of a second, and then it might be 10. And it won't suddenly jump, but it will move as the quality of the signal moves. And then a new satellite comes into view. And all bets are off and I do this again. The other part of this is I basically have a problem with latency as well. Because as I flip from satellite to satellite, they are at different distances from me. And that means different propagation time. So every 15 seconds, I get a new end-to-end -end latency. Oh, right. This is like why the sun looks redder when you see it setting, because you're actually looking through more looking of the through Earth's more, atmosphere. More stuff. It's not the same as its radial distance right. when it's overhead. The angle changes the distance between me and the satellite in view. So in TCP, you have this thing called a round-trip time estimate. That's really important, because when I send you a packet, and if I don't get an answer within that round trip time, I have to believe you I lost it. I can assume it. that the packet got lost and resend. and resend. Right. But if my round trip time is too small, I'll be sending good stuff needlessly because I haven't waited long enough for the answer. I'm just, I assume you right. dropped it when and you didn't. In terrestrial communications, mostly for fibre and cable, it's a constant round trip to the end point. So sooner or later, to. TCP learns this because you can't pre-configure it. But when you're talking to something variable that with variable is, delay and variable path, is, it's varying round trip times. It's constant mush and TCP gets very, very confused. And you've, you've been able to measure some of this behavior? Well, oddly enough, it's really simple. It's called ping. 
<laughs> We've invested all this time in a measurement podcast and we're talking about using ping to measure. Ping is really good. Ping just tells you how long it takes to get there and back. And that's exactly what TCP is trying to estimate. So you've been doing ping measures on I've been doing, Starlink. I've been doing a really simple measure. And, and the measure is actually incredibly easy. You send a ping every second. And you measure how long it takes for the answer and you measure the reliability. Now, if every 50 seconds, 15. 15 seconds, I'm switching to a new satellite, I have in my head a belief I'm going to be seeing a regular clock of drop as I switch between them. So I kind of feel like this is very predictable. Are you seeing predictable drop? Not drop. I see predictable shifts in latency. So every 15 seconds, you move to a different latency bucket. It might have been at 50 to 60 milliseconds, and 15 seconds later, it might be 55 to 62, and then it might be 47 to 48. So the latency shifts every 15 seconds. But it's not actually a constant pattern of what it shifts no. to. No. But when I do the one-second pings, yeah. there's something else going on, and this is this variable signal-to-noise issue, that I get drop. And it's only normally one packet, micro drops. One packet just goes away. I don't get an answer. And then, you know, it's good for a while, minute, 30 seconds, whatever, a while. And then I get another packet drop. So there's no constancy in the loss rate that no, you're seeing. But over a day, 86,000 pings, I'd lose somewhere between 4,000 to 6,000. And they're all solitons. It's just, you miss one. It's not a bunch of them. You're not in a bad zone because badness in Starlink doesn't last for multiple seconds because everything's moving too quickly, right? They're all zooming overhead. So the dynamics of the system means that if you look at a granularity one second, you will get singleton drops. Now, in and of itself, you go, well, that's okay. That's tolerable. But when we look at how TCP flow control works, the answer is, oh my God. Well, it it sounds like TCP flow control is for older established terrestrial networking based on predictable behaviors. And you've just knocked two of these behaviors out of the core. Knocked everything out of the park. And so when you get a, a the typical one today is, a, is an algorithm called cubic, but the algorithm's the same kind of the world over. Keep on accelerating the rate at which I push packets into the network. And as long as I get constant acknowledgements that the packets have been received. I send you a packet, I send you another, and then, you know, the first one I sent, I get an acknowledgement. Every acknowledgement means the packet successfully has been left the network. It's, it's exited. Elvis has left the building. So if I send a packet for every acknowledgement, I'm putting constant pressure on the network. Yeah. If I send 1.1 packets for every acknowledgement, I'm increasing my pressure by 10%. Yeah. And so over time, I'm really pushing away at the network because every time I get an ACK, I'm sending a little bit more than just one packet. But at some point, the other end is going to say, I can't Well, it's up. not the other end, it's the network. I stress the network out, I stress the buffers. Yeah. So at some point, when I just gently push at the network, when I send slightly more, my sending rate slightly higher than my ACK rate, is I've got my foot on the accelerator, just gently moving faster. Yeah. I'm going to hit something, packet loss, bang. Now, the way TCP normally works is 
packet loss is bad, you've not only gone too fast, but you've filled up all the buffers. All of the internal network sort of shock absorbers are now full. Yeah. So you've got to back off and let time for those buffers to drain and stop sending so fast. Yeah. Now, it may be you've hit the upper limit of line capacity. It may be you're competing with another TCP. It doesn't matter. When you back off, back off dramatically. Back off quickly. And in the TCP terms, the normal behavior is halve your rate. Immediately rate halve. And then once you've got that rate half working, you've taken a pause for breath, you've let the buffers drain, one round trip time to let them drain, you then start at that half rate and gently increase the pressure. So it's a slow rise and a sharp fall. Additive and a increase, slow rise, multiplicative decrease. Short fall. Right. And you have a target in mind because you knew where you last hit some kind of peak. You could imagine approach the peak and try not to go over it and you're going to sit at that peak rate. Well, in actual fact, because you want to be fair to everyone, you don't memorize that rate. The behavior is more important. Because don't forget, if someone else starts up beside you, you've only got half the capacity. So you don't memorize that capacity. So this is standard cubic behavior. Now I put it on Starlink, 200 megabits per second, and I measure it. How fast does it go? You're lucky if you can keep 50 running, 30, 10, 5, 2. Because when you put sustained pressure on a link that does not have a consistent capacity and a consistent latency, Cubic just backs off and backs off and backs off because the loss events that Cubic thinks is everyone else is interfering, I better be polite, are actually noise effects that Cubic misinterprets because I haven't got the constancy of round trip time, the constancy of a firm upper limit. So what you actually find is it's very hard to do sustained high capacity throughput through Starlink using Cubic because the protocol is not designed for that kind of behavior. Right. But we are also in a modern TCP world and we have modern TCP bandwidth estimation approaches that aren't necessarily cubic. So are there other ways? Well, there's one other way and it's entirely different. And I think we've talked about this before, but if we haven't, let's talk about BBR, bottleneck bandwidth estimation. So we're in a modern world. We have choices other than we, cubic. There are some new choices around. And, and part of this issue actually came up with our use of mobility in terms of handhelds and you know, 4Gs and 5Gs. Because again, the performance wasn't brilliant. And it was for the same reason, actually, as Starlink's issues. Radio. They don't have constant delay and they don't have constant loss. Well, it's the loss thing that's actually the big giveaway. Because in the wired network, fiber, copper, whatever, loss is a signal that you've pushed it too far. Loss is a really important signal to go, Back off, dude, and back off quickly because you've got a problem. Whereas in the radio world, loss is just the signal-to-noise ratio went below a threshold. We lost that packet, but we're good again. So you shouldn't be using loss as the primary signal when you're trying to deal with a lossy network. Well, it, it's not the best idea because if you're using loss and you get random loss, you tend to back off unnecessarily and you leave a lot of unused bandwidth on the table because the losses caused you to overreact.
So right. IP is going to cope and TCP is going to cope. It's going to cope. But you're going to have all this headroom that you won't use you won't because you believe you won't you get can't 200 get megabits a second. You'd be lucky to get, you know, 30. So what was the approach that people did to overcome well, this, is, this problem? There was an early approach about using delay instead of loss. As the delay increased, you kind of went slower because that was a signal that the buffers were filling up. The, the network was kind of choking on packets, so if you backed off a bit, you'd give it breathing space. And then Google came out with a thing they called BBR, which was sort of a modification of that approach, but it was subtly different. The way this one worked was you had an estimate. Let's just say you got the estimate by magic. I have an estimate of how much capacity is in this link. And for the next six round trip times, I'm just going to fly blind and I'm just going to send at that rate. What if you lose packets? I'll just repair them at the fly. I'll just send at that rate and I won't back off even if there is loss. On the next round trip time, I'll increase my sending rate. The initial version was by one quarter, 25% more packets. I'm just going to shove into the network and I'm going to watch very carefully what happened to each of them. And I'm going to measure their delay, the amount of time it takes between when I sent them and when I get back the ACK. If the delay increases when I did that 25% burst, then I know that I'm just at the limit of the network. So don't do that. No, stay at the rate I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no aggressive backing off Oh, here. no, for the next round trip time, you send 25% fewer packets to let the network drain. Okay, so there is a back-off component. For one round trip time. So you go six-eighths of the time, odd fraction, you fly blind. For the next round, 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 round trip, increase the pressure a lot, 25%. And for the next round trip time, back off to let that sort of momentary impulse drain. So it's kind of like you're driving and you tap the accelerator and then you immediately back off. So your average speed's the same, but you just kind of probed in. And if I didn't crash? If you didn't crash and you didn't increase the delay, there's 25% more headroom in the network, dude. Let's go faster. So how frequently is this happening Every in a typical eight scenario? Every round trip times. And how many round trips per interval of time? If we say a, a, a millisecond, are there many round trips? If it's a millisecond round trip time, there's a thousand of them every second. It depends on, if you will, the distance between you and the other end. And the closer you are together, the more constantly you'll test. The further apart you are, you'll test less constantly. But the issue is, for six-eighths of the time, you're actually flying at a pretty high rate irrespective of loss. So if loss is random, if loss is random, you won't react. You won't go slower. You won't back off. This sounds like a good fit for the random loss situation of radio networking. Well, it's fantastic. The mobile operators don't like it, but, you know, we consumers are sitting there going, more power, you know, it's all about me. And, and the issue is this makes incredibly good use of networks whose carriage characteristics have high jitter, have high random loss and have variable bandwidth, which I've just described Starlink for you. So it's a good fit for the situation we find ourselves in. So what, what I find when I test a Starlink circuit using BBR is 
The packet loss rates increase dramatically, yes, but the speed doesn't go down. So instead of five megabits per second, 10 megabits per second, I'm up to 150 to 200 megabits per second, and I'm just putting constant pressure at that rate. If I need to move data, BBR will do a much, much better job for me. Oddly enough, everyone else who's using Cubic beside me, my neighbours, might have a bit of a harder time because it's not terribly friendly. But on the other hand, the whole idea of packet networking and adaptive protocols says the network is there to be used, there is no point conserving it. An idle road is a wasted road. The job of TCP is to fill the road. That's where you get the best return. And BBR is actually fulfilling on that promise. That what it gives you is a protocol that works well even under, I think, the most adverse of conditions. And oddly enough, Starlink is, despite all this engineering, one of the most adverse conditions we've yet to actually bring up. Not because it's out at Neptune, it's a huge delay. That's a different problem. It's really close. It's just 50 milliseconds. This is fast, but it's highly variable and there's a lot of loss. And trying to train a protocol to work under that impression of noise and variability, cubic doesn't work. Now, a bit of Zoom, bit of video, bit of messaging, not a problem. I have a terabyte of data I want to move, big problem. So depending on the mixture of activities that as people we're using this network for, we might or might not be exposed to this problem. Oh, video streaming will be just fine no matter what. Electronic mail, messaging, just fine. Most of the things you do, just fine. But I must admit, I do look at the edges and the way you know I've always looked at the edges is how much capacity can you put through? What's its end points? Where's the limit of this? And how do you get the networks working at the limit to work at the extreme end of the efficiency spectrum? And, and at that point, what we're finding is the standard TCP protocols just fail. They leave space on the table. Now, Zoom still works. I'm like, it's not as if, oh my God, it just doesn't work like that. But if you really want to make it sing and dance, you've really got to think about how to, what, what kind of protocols am I going to use to make it dance this way. I like a quality here that is you don't have to get the special magic IP stack to use Starlink. They don't have to install special magic IP tuned for the satellite network. What happens is you can develop higher layer protocols to behave in ways that can work effectively on this fabric. So what we're finding is that BBR is actually useful everywhere, including on the wired network. Now, this is kind of a funny, it's almost reptiles and mammals. BBR can coexist with other BBRs. It's a little bit more random than TCP friendliness, but they basically equilibrate. When the reptiles are put in with the mammals, someone mm, dies. Yeah, they don't and, play nice together. And, and BBR with cubic, with loss-based congestion in the same wire, the loss-based systems tend to be overly polite. BBR tends to be overly aggressive. The outcomes are that if you're competing for long-term bandwidth, BBR always wins. And depending on if you're running Cubic, that's a bad outcome. If I'm running Cubic, a bad outcome. But if you know I'm running BBR, I'm a winner. The BBRs will work with each other, but less so with others. Hmm. 
Now, what do we want out of Starlink? Do we want idle bandwidth? Do we want idle capacity? Why did we launch this stuff other than to use it? And what we found with 5G and all of those adaptive bandwidth protocols was what I really want to do is shovel this data out of the way and get the user off my network. Hmm. I don't want to let them hanging around. Everyone gets frustrated and angry because things just get slow. You don't actually want speed. You want the transaction finished as quickly as possible. Speed gets you that only if you can clear the transaction. So using a protocol that can maximize use of the available bandwidth and that is not confronted by random loss and changes in bandwidth in ways that make it unable to consume it when it's available, using a thing like BBR, a mechanism to discover, uncover, and use the available bandwidth that's varying is probably a good thing. It's a much better use of the resource. It creates, if you will, happier users and effectively clears the carriage space for other users. You get a higher packing efficiency and you actually get greater throughput through the entire system. So I, I'm actually a firm believer in moving away from loss-based congestion control protocols. I think they're, they've done their use-by date. They're yeah. a 1980s protocol in a world that's different. We like the utility of radio. We love the utility of having this stuff up in the space. Why? Because Everywhere on the planet can use it. I'm really quite interested in the idea that a bunch of capital risks trying to cable high-speed service to rural, remote, disparate communities, that's a massive social impost laying fibre on the ground. If I could convert that to using low-orbit satellites and get low RTT effectively and high bandwidth to a lot of people, I think that's a really good Cars outcome. Cars on the road, ships on the ocean, planes in the sky. It's the same thing. To a satellite at that speed, even a plane looks like it's not moving. It's the same technology. And the prospects of this in that area of utility and mobility without concentrated usage, where fibre works, concentrated usage, use the waveguides. But when you move away from that high density, the waveguides become a capital-intensive problem, yeah. which you don't need. Radio solves that problem by going... Let's not pay for the cables. Let's not pay for the waveguides. Just beam it. Now, you can put a mobile tower on every hill. That's still a big mm. problem. I can put a dish on the roof of my car. It's a solved problem. I just drive anywhere and look up, you know. Maybe the roof is the dish. It won't work in, well, yes, but it just won't work in tunnels, you know. <laughs> tunnels. <laughs> Stay out of the tunnels. I don't think they can make the Leo orbits <laughs> low enough to, Zip down to deal with that But problem. you see what I'm kind of saying yeah. here? That I think there is a real and enduring role for this kind of technology. But it's not as if I could just think of TCP as the universal adaption protocol and go, yep, everything will just keep on working. I need to think about what we need out of the next 50 years yeah. in the way these protocols work and sort of move ourselves onward to a model where we make more efficient use of what I think is a relatively hostile carriage environment yeah. and actually extract maximal value. So the internet's not a solved problem. No. There's some fascinating areas and I actually find this weird mix of physics and technology and protocol that Starlink just embodies in one package to be a truly interesting mix and that's exposed, I think, some very fascinating parts of where do we want to go with this stuff and how can we make use of it. All measured 
by the power of the ICMP packet. Power of ping. All of this is actually exposed in the ping work that I'm doing on in measuring it. Yes, it's, it's, it's unbelievable what you can do if you just think hard enough about that measurement and try to understand how that relates to the characteristics of what you're measuring. Now, you've got a quite nice visualisation of some aspects of this communication that's available on the lab's website. Yes, you can put the URL afterwards, but yes, there's a website of visualisations and, and sort of the ongoing work in measuring. I have a couple of, of Starlink services where people have been nice enough to host one of my boxes at their end, the earth end, where I constantly ping and do a little bit of sort of bandwidth measurement and, and just constantly report on what and how it works. And also look at what satellites are up there at any point in time, which way are they moving? Hmm. There are a lot. No, it's interesting stuff. Thank you, Jeff. That's been really fascinating. An absolute pleasure, George. Till next time. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.